All right. Okay, we are live. Well, uh, as you take our take your seats, uh, we will get started. Um, it's great to see some familiar faces, especially Josh back there. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks for coming to the third, I guess the third lesson of Fundamentals of the Faith. And, um, you know, as you know, uh, the purpose of this course, this Fundamentals of the Faith course, is to really get ourselves as a church on the same page as it comes to the fundamental truths of Christianity. And, you know, we used to do this on an ongoing basis. Uh, we used to teach this class sort of like as a sidecar to the regular Sunday school um, Dwayne actually taught it for many years, and uh, before that, other people taught it. Um, and then we kind of stopped for a little bit with the pandemic and everything. But um, we decided to start it up again and maybe take the whole church through it at least uh, once, just to see um, whether or not we're on the same page, because there's, there's some new people, there's some new believers. And although these are fundamentals of the faith, we, we never fully graduate from these fundamentals, right? We can get deeper and deeper into these fundamentals, and we can understand them better. Uh, so this is profitable even if you've been around for a while. And I know when I was studying for this, um, you know, I learned a lot despite being around for a long time. So, um, okay, so last time you guys learned how to study the Bible, right? I guess the pastor um, took us through sort of what is the Bible and how to study it? And that's a good place to start because the Bible is our only source of truth, right? It's the only source of truth and the only way we can know anything at all. So without the Bible, it's impossible to really make any progress on any of this other stuff. Um, but now having sort of mastered the principles of Bible interpretation as, as much as we could have mastered it in a week, um, we are ready to embark upon the main topic of this lesson in the last next two weeks, which is God himself. And so while we begin, let's uh, start out with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for this time, um, these next uh, two weeks or so, to look at what the Bible says about you, your character, your attributes, who you are, and how you have described yourself. Um, and these wondrous mysteries that you have presented for us in your word, Help us to be absorbed by them, help us to be mesmerized by them, and help us to help help us to be driven to worship by meditation and contemplation of these great truths of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, the title of this lesson today is God, His Character, and Attributes. And um, there's 11 attributes we'll try to look at in this next two weeks, and that means we have about 10 minutes each. <laughs> uh, so each of them could be a sermon of itself, and in fact, I know Mark and Dave and, and the, the rest of the men uh, on Tuesday nights um, have been going through a whole book devoted to the, the attributes of God. Um, and uh, if you are interested in that, or if you're interested in anything we talk about today, and, you, you, and I guess if you're a man and you want more depth, to that, uh, please go to uh, Mark, and he'll tell you all about the men's uh, study. And if you're a woman, I don't have anything for you. I'm sorry. 
Um, you're just going to have to talk to, to the ladies' Bible study leaders, uh, Cheryl and, and Jane and all those people. Okay, so even if you're not a man, the Iron Man recordings are still available for you to get deeper and deeper. But this is really meant to be sort of a survey of the landscape. And, of course, you know, Mark and company can, can help me out um, as we meditate on them. Okay, so today for each attribute, we want to discuss sort of, let's see if I have my slides up. I don't actually know what slides I have. Okay, so yeah, so for each of the attributes, this is a little small, um, we're going to try to discuss three things of each of these attributes. First of all, um, you know, what does the Bible say about it? Um, okay, this is not really the slide here. Oh, let me, I'll show that later. Um, so what does the Bible say about it? How do we live in light of this attribute? And then I thought we would consider sort of what would be uh, the effect of having a low view of the attribute. Um, because, of course, um, for every of these attributes that we're going to talk about, we have some conception in our mind about what that is. And if we have a high view of that, it's going to affect our lives. And if you have a low view of that, it's also going to affect your lives. So that's what we're going to talk about. And um, we're going to try to stick to our strict schedule. Because last time, I think the pastor went over by a week, and then I messed up the entire schedule for the summer. And then Pastor Dave had a hard time trying to figure it all out again. So uh, for his sake, we will... We will try not to go over. Okay, so before we get into it, let's discuss for a few minutes sort of why it's important to study the attributes of God. Um, why is it important to know the attributes of God? So I open up to you guys. Uh, tell me in your own words or in your own mind, you know, why study the attributes of God? Yes, Layla. Okay, humbles you, right? So, so it humbles us and, and gives us the, the right sort of God-centered worldview. Any, okay, Dwayne, back there. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, if you don't know who God is, um, how do you know you're worshiping the right God? How do you know you're worshiping the right God? And, you know, the, the heartbreaking thing is that um, I think if you look out in sort of so-called Christendom, um, there's lots of people who would call themselves Christians, um, who think they're headed to heaven, but they have no idea who God is. And um, that's not a, you know, at some point that becomes not a saving faith. Um, anybody else? Yes, Mark. Oh, do Mark first and then Glenn. So it's, it's really, it's not a theoretical study. And that's something that I think we need to understand before we set out on the study. This is not a theoretical study. The more you understand the attributes of God, the better you live. The better you live. And Glenn, you had something? Yes, yes, that, that, 
goes back to humility. And this is the slide that I was supposed to show before. Uh, so here's some, here are some just sort of my own thoughts. Salvation, um, because, you know, worshiping the wrong God is idolatry, right? Um, worship, because what is worship? If you boil it down to what it really is and you strip away sort of the music and, and sort of the, the glittering lights, not that we do that here, but uh, you get that worship is really meditation on the attributes of God. It's really just adoration of God for his attributes and who he is. Um, and also uh, living, as Mark was saying, um, this is critical for us to understand in terms of uh, living. The more you understand the attributes of God, the better you live. And, of course, this is the quote that um, is repeated every single time somebody does a study on the attributes of God because it is a great quote from A.W. Tozer, uh, which is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, and what, what, what does that sort of mean? What does that quote mean for somebody who's heard this before and, and sort of broken it down? Does this make sense? Does this resonate? Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Okay, so he's our being. He created us. Yeah. Okay. Right, so when everybody, um, everybody in the world, when you mention the word God, they all have an image in their mind, right? Or not maybe in a pictorial image, but they have some type of conception of who God is. And that pretty much dictates everything else about you. Dictates how you act, how you behave, um, how much, essentially, how much peace you have, um, how much joy you have, um, uh, and, you know, it dictates whether or not you're a real Christian. So, so that's why that is. Uh, let's... Um, it shapes everything you do. So, like, I think your workbook, I think if you have this uh, open at Lesson 3, you also have a quote from Spurgeon on the first page, and maybe somebody can read that real fast. Any volunteers to, to read that Spurgeon quote? Yes. All right, Mike. Okay, so Spurgeon is saying that really understanding the Godhead and, the, and, the, and sort of plunging yourself in it uh, can comfort your soul, can comfort your soul. Um, it can even uh, relieve the billows of sorrow and grief and uh, the winds of trial. I'll give you some other quotes. MacArthur says, knowing God is the highest pursuit of your life. Uh, Steve Lawson says, a high view of God leads to high living. A low view of God leads to low living. And uh, Spurgeon, uh, another quote from Spurgeon, to know God as he is is the essence of true religion. To understand his character, his attributes, and his works is the groundwork of all real Christian experience. And uh, on the second page of your workbook, there is another quote by Tozer. Uh, maybe somebody can read that for us. Then we'll get into it. On the top of... Uh, Second page. Anybody? 
Anybody read that? Volunteers? Mark? Okay. Okay, thanks. So basically what he's saying is the wrong view of God leads to all errors. And if you think about it, um, every religion in the world has a view about who God is. But it's slightly skewed. It's slightly messed up. And, you know, for example, the Muslim God lacks love and forgiveness. Uh, the Hindu gods lacked grace and love. Uh, the Unitarian God lacks justice and holiness. Uh, the Mormon God lacks eternality and omnipresence. So you have all of the gods of the, the false gods of the world, and you can understand that they just have a, a slightly different view of the attributes of God. Um, it's no exaggeration then to, to say that knowing God is really the most important thing that we can do. And before we just kind of dive into it, I, I do want to point out that when we talk about knowing God, we're not just talking about a head knowledge of facts about God, right? Um, there's a difference between being able to pass a test on the attributes of God and really knowing it. Um, you can know it up here, but then you cannot know it down here, right? Um, and for those of you who, who have studied sort of biblical counseling or, or have counseled others, um, you know that a lot of biblical counseling really boils down to understanding who God is, the attributes of God, and then actually living as if that's true. Um, actually starting to live as if God is merciful and loving and kind and just. Um, so uh, it lives, you live it out in your life. You live these attributes out. All right, so the consequences of not knowing God is catastrophic. And knowing God, rightly and correctly, will lead to a life of joy that doesn't make any sense to anybody else, right? Joy leads to unnatural peace, a peace throughout circumstances that wouldn't make any sense to anybody else. And uh, that's what we want, and that's what we will get out of the study. Right? Okay, so here are some of the attributes of God that we'll look at. And there's 11 of them. This is definitely not exhaustive. There, and, you know, obviously, there are other attributes that um, some people uh, put in when they study it. But this is the, the 11 we'll be looking at. Um, and let's talk first about holiness. So holiness, the holiness of God, I would say, is the most important attribute of God to understand first. You have to understand the holiness of God before you can really appreciate the other attributes. And the holiness of God is really the attribute that is most commonly used to describe God in Scripture. Um, when, when God is described, he's described as holy before he's described as anything else. Um, and, um, you know, I think one place to go to in order to really understand the holiness of God is, let's start with Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And uh, if somebody can be so kind as to read to me 
Isaiah 6, from verses 1 to 3. So this is one of my, um, this is one of the most sort of picturesque images in scripture. Um, so, you know, the king Uzziah um, dies and Isaiah, the prophet at that point, has a vision of God. And uh, this vision is, is majestic as, as we just read. Um, it's really what should come to your mind first as you think about the holiness of God. Um, look at what's in this picture. So you have God seated on a throne, and the train of his robe is filling the temple with glory. And, you know, back then, uh, the, the, the length of the train of your robe has something to do with how powerful you are as a king, right? So the longer the train of your robe, the more powerful you are as a king. And the train of God's robe is so long that it fills the entire temple. There's no room for anything else in the temple except for his robe um, because he is so incredibly powerful. Um, and then not only that, but there are angels. Um, and in fact, this is uh, the seraphim who are flying about God. And, um, you know, th this is mysterious imagery, but you have six wings. Two of the wings are covering their face because the holiness of God is too, it would burn anybody up, right? It would burn you up to, 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 be, to, to behold the holiness of God. Um, it is um, too much to behold. And then uh, two, two to cover their feet because, you know, the feet are anything that has to do with um, anything that might be, might be, might be pure, impure or dirty about you. And then two wings are flying, ready to sort of zip off to anywhere and minister as God commands. And you have these angels, but what are they doing? What is their main purpose? Think about it. Yeah. So what are they saying? One angel is saying to another angel, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And the other angel responds what? whole earth is filled with his glory. And this is just going back and forth. That's all the angels are doing right now. They're going back and forth, worshiping God, proclaiming not love, 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 right? Not grace, 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 although that is true. Not truth, 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 although God is, of course, the God of truth. But they're proclaiming holy, holy, holy. Um, and this image should fill you with awe. Um, and these angels, I'll tell you, um, we're not going to be that much different than them in heaven because much of what is going to happen is he in heaven is going to be us beholding the holiness of God and giving him worship for it. 
and it's going to be good. We're going to like it. <laughs> because there's nothing better than the holiness of God. What does holiness mean? What does the word holy mean? Some of you know. What does the word holy actually mean? Awesome, okay. It, it, it can, pure, sure. Set apart. The, the word actually literally means to cut away or to separate, right? So you're separated. And that's what the word literally means. God is different than you. He is separated from us. Um, he's not like us. There is no shadow of, of sin or impurity um, or even ordinariness in any way. Everything about God is separate from us. He is ultimately pure. So you think about that. You know, things pure are valuable, right? If, you're, if you have like a nugget of, of uh, or like a, maybe a diamond ring, and that ring, that diamond on that ring is pure, then that, if you ever shop for an engagement ring, the, the price of that ring goes up exponentially as the purity goes up. Um, and that's the true for, true for everything, true for dogs. Uh, purebred dogs are, you know, thousands of dollars that you could sell and, and you know, breed for, for, um, for money. Um, you know, pure gold is obviously much more valuable than adulterated gold. And you think about that and you, think, you realize that God is the most pure thing in the universe. He's the most pure and therefore the most beautiful thing in the universe. And his holiness, his separateness, his purity is his defining characteristic. In Revelation 4.8, which we won't take a look at right now, um, we'll see that uh, in heaven, this is what worship is. Um, just proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. And um, in Exodus 15, 11, which I think you read in your homework. In, uh, right, I think you read in your homework. Um, can somebody read Exodus 15, 11? I think if you already have it in your workbook. Okay. So who is like you? And then the first thing that Exodus 15:11 mentions is holiness. Before any of the other characteristics. Holiness is the most defining characteristic of God. So, let's now move toward the um, how it affects our lives. If God is holy, what should that mean in your life? What do you guys think? You live like you believe it. What would it look like? Yes. Did somebody else? Somebody have something to say? Okay. So, one the first thing to understand is that holiness of God isn't something that we can just behold, as if it's something that is not expected of us. Right? Uh, we ought to be imitators of the holiness of God. What does that mean in your life? If you if if you ought to be holy. As God is holy. What does that mean in your life? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. 
this is a, what you brought up is a great example of how God's attributes work together. Because God is not just holy, but he's also gracious. And without the gracious part and without the loving part, his holiness would be something to be feared. But because God is loving and God is gracious, we can strive to be holy and know we'll fall short, but know that we're accepted by God anyways. Um, but yes. Yeah, so I think what you've been, what you brought up, Glenda, and what, what uh, Mark also brought up is this idea of personal holiness, right? Our personal holiness, holiness, um, we should be paying attention to that. And remember, holiness means separate, right? I, you know, at the end of the day, we need to understand that there are things in this world that we need to separate from. Um, there are things in this world that make us, our thoughts, make our, our actions. Uh, impure. And, you know, I mean, just think about what you may watch on TV, what you may watch on Netflix, what sites you go to, these thoughts that come into your mind may make you impure. Um, how much social media you consume, um, sometimes there's um, a lot of sort of um, negative, I'll just say negative things on social media that are not profitable um, and make you as a person unholy. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Um, so one thing that I think we need to understand is that holiness isn't something just that somebody can see from the outside, right? It's not like, oh, as long as this person sort of uh, doesn't do X, Y, Z, then they must be holy. But holiness is something that is also in your thought life. It's also even in the innermost parts of your being. God is pure and holy into the innermost parts of his being. And that means what we think. And even Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, um, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Um, dwell on those things. So make sure your thought life is holy. Anybody else have any things that, yep. Yes, worship. You know, you know as, as we mentioned, worship is really what we will be doing for all eternity in heaven. And it's been said, you know, if you don't think that that's going to be an enjoyable time, um, you might not want to go to heaven. Because <laughs> that's what we'll be mostly doing there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think we have this idea sometimes that maybe holiness is like kind of Thing that's kind of a little bit of a bummer, right? Like, you know, my, 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 I was trying to explain this to my kids um, in the last few weeks, and uh, I asked them sort of what they thought about when they thought about holiness, and, you know, mostly they said, this seems kind of like you don't want us to have any fun. <laughs> it seems as if, like, all the fun things in the world are not that holy. Um, uh, but, um, you know, that's just, maybe we also have that thought, 
maybe we also have that conception. And we have to understand that that is really a deception of the devil. Holiness ought to be something we earnestly desire. Is that something you earnestly desire? Is that something you earnestly desire? Do you want it more than anything else? Because, you know, did you know that in holiness is found the greatest joy? That's where holiness is. It's joy. Holiness is a fulfilling life. The, to live a holy life is to, fill, to live a joy-filled life, a free life, a life of freedom from the bondage of sin, um, a life unstained by corruption, and uh, something you earnestly desire. And you know what? Holiness is enjoyable. It's more enjoyable than the sin that maybe comes into your mind when you think of what might be enjoyable. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's not a chore, right? So it's, it's a command, but it's not a command that is sort of like, go eat your asparagus, you know? I mean, maybe you like, like asparagus. But, um, but it, you know, if you have this idea that holiness is boring, then I think, you know, maybe offline, you need to meditate on that, and you need to think about that, and why you think that. Maybe it's because, you know, you're worldly in some ways, and you ought to realize that that's a deception. Those things that you think are might might not might be more fun than holiness are actually in actuality not, right? They're not. Holiness is the path to joy. It's the path to a life well lived, and um, and we should all understand that. And really, understanding that is part of sanctification. That's what that means. All right. So, what happens if you have a deficient view of holiness? Um, what happens when somebody has a view of holiness that isn't up to par, and maybe not in their heads, but in their hearts. What happens? Oh, for anybody, but sure, for believers. Okay, like what? Like what? What? What may? How may it appear in your life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you'll you'll be likely to play with sin. And, and playing with sin, and you, you feel like, yeah, this is probably fine. Yeah. Um, not a big deal. And I love that, the fact that it says submit, because that is an active thing. 
to submit is something that you have to do um, in a sort of conscious way. Um, but the rewards of that are phenomenal. Um, He's exalted in glory. Um, you see a deficient view of holiness when, you know, th there, uh, maybe 10 years ago, there used to be a fad for, like, pastors who cuss. Um, that used to be a, so used to be a thing. Um, pastors who, who sort of are cool and, and sort of in the world. And, um, and uh, you know, what comes out of your mouth is what reflects reflection of your heart. Um, a lack of reverence in worship. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, when you see popular cultural de depictions of worship, um, it's basically like a, a mosh pit. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not trying to make any comments on, on what kind of worship is, is better than others at this point in time, but um, there are types of worship where your heart isn't on the holiness of God. You're not meditating on the holiness of God. It's something else. It's a rock concert. It's an emotional um, event. So, and, and also, you know, even just a lack of heart in worship on the other side, too. You know, the holiness of God, you have to understand, as we talked about, God is the purest thing in the universe and therefore the most awesome to behold. And you think about this vision that Isaiah had and how he fell on his face and he said, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a people of unclean lips. And this is a prophet of God and, you know, he, he's not... He's not um, He's not the worst sinner. <laughs> He's better than us. Um, but, you know, he falls on his face. And, you know, are you enthralled by God the same way when you worship? And, you know, not even just in song, but just in, in, in any way of your life when you worship. Are you enthralled by God in that way? Um, do you behold the holiness of God and say, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. So... If you see any of these things in your life, you, you may have a, a low view of God's holiness. All right, so moving on, closely connected to holiness is God's attribute of, of righteousness and justice. So the next one is God's attribute of righteousness and justice. And I have some of the verses we'll go over there if you want to get your fingers ready. So, you know, this is sort of what we actually associate with holiness. It's sort of righteousness and sort of justice. Um, I, I think it's more useful to think of holiness as just being separate from sort of the, the corruption of the world. But righteousness is what? Well, what is, the, I mean, this was a definition of this in the, in the homework. Can, can somebody tell me the difference between righteousness and justice? What is the, what are the sort of um, nuanced differences between these two things? Yeah, I think I think uh, I think you're on the right track. I think it's I think the book explains this slightly differently. Um, does anybody have the the definition the book has, or that you went through in your workbook? Okay, so 
so righteousness, as, as Benda was saying, is it's basically God acting, acting according to his nature, which is holiness. And his acts are all righteous. Everything he does is righteous. There, there is no sin. There is no impurity. There's no, um, there's no shadow of darkness in any of his actions. And then justice is what? Okay, good. So it's how he basically applies his righteousness standard to you <laughs> and how he applies his, his standard of righteousness to, to the world. Okay, so both God is both righteous and he's also perfectly just. Um, he, as, as Glenda was saying, he doesn't ever give you more justice than you deserve, nor does he ever give you less justice than you deserve. Um, he always gives the right amount of justice, <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, that doesn't really necessarily help you at all. Um, okay. So, it's important to understand that the source of God's righteousness is not some sort of higher law than God that he has to adhere to. Right? It's not as if there's a law above God, and that's the law that God has to apply. No, God himself is the law. And, um, okay, so what can we understand this to mean? Think of, let's just meditate on, for, on it for, for a few minutes. So, like, Oftentimes, God, God does something, maybe, and you may disagree that that's the right thing to do. Um, so, you know, I, I think about maybe Moses not being able to enter the promised land. I was going through this with my kids at one point, and Moses does all these great works for God, right? He, he does, um, you know, he parts the Red Sea, and he does all, he leads all these Israel out. People are complaining against him, and they want to kill him, and he, he, he rises above all of that. And then one day... God tells Moses, hey, you know, talk to that rock and, and let, you know, let water come out. And Moses, in a fit of anger, strikes the rock instead of talking to it. And then because of that, God says, you're never going to enter the promised land. The, the promised land that you so long to see, that you led the people through the wilderness for 40 years, you're not, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to enter that. That's the consequence for striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And when I read that to my kids, they were like, what? why would they do, why would God do that? That's like a, that seems like such a trivial little thing, right? Like, I mean, I mean, you know, we do things out of anger all the time sometimes, you know? Like, you know, sometimes you, to, to think about this one little thing that Moses do, did, and that disqualifies him from his dream. Is that, is that right? Is that right? I mean, from a human perspective, it seems like it's too much, right? It seems too, like it's going too far. But God's righteousness means this. If we disagree that this is righteous, then what this means is that you are wrong. <laughs> you are wrong. God is righteous, and your standard for righteousness is too low. That's what it means. It means our standard for righteousness is too low. And on the same vein, some may think that it is unjust to send people to hell, even seemingly good people. Um, think about people who have never been in trouble with the law, even people upheld as standards of morality, even people who have lived lives of self-sacrifice, um, maybe even, you know, 
nuns and priests, Mother Teresa, or Buddhist monks who dedicate their lives to the service of the poor. And you think it's inappropriate to send these people to hell. Maybe we should let them go with a slap on the wrist or purgatory, or which is a man-made invention to resolve exactly the tension. And you think maybe that's not just to send people to hell. right yeah mm -hmm. yeah fairness is that everybody goes to hell yeah <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's right. And, and when, you, when your standard of justice disagrees with God's standard of justice, you're the one who's wrong. Right? This is, I mean, this is what it means when you look at the righteousness and justice of God. God's righteousness and justice are perfect, and they're far above our standards of righteousness and justice. Far above. And, um, you know, he comes from a place of perfect holiness and purity. His judgment is not clouded by sin or impurity, but yours is. So, what about us? How does a, a high view of God's righteousness and justice affect our lives? How ought it to affect our lives when we have a high view of God's righteousness and justice? What do you think? Yeah, amazing. And, you know, you think about what you just said, like, we are undeserving of heaven. Um, but yet, God met that standard of righteousness on our behalf. And that ought to drive you to your knees in worship. That ought to drive you to your knees in thankfulness. A high view of God's righteousness will lead you to thankfulness and praise. Um, it also humbles us because it really helps us understand how far short we fall, right? And, and you know, like, it cures you of all of your self-righteousness, <laughs> right? Because you look at somebody else and you say, hold on, April. Like, you say, you say I see you. Um, you. You say, you know, this person, how could they do this? How could they be so unrighteous according to my standards? But when you understand God's standard of righteousness, you realize not only do they fall short of that standard, you also fall short of that standard, and you really don't have anything to say about this, right? Um, uh, uh, April had something to say. Yeah. Oh, Tina, I'm sorry. I messed up.
it should drive you to, to love of God. And so if your heart is cold toward God, which, you know, sometimes for all of us in our Christian life, there might be times when your heart is a little bit colder than, than others, um, one thing that you can do is to meditate on the righteousness of God and how far you, how far you fell short of that and how God saved you from the consequences of that. Okay, a deficient view of, of God's righteousness leads to self-righteousness. It leads to a cheapened view of grace, a tendency to minimize sin, um, theology of, you know, of sort of hell, where hell doesn't exist. And that's where really a lot of um, these sort of cults where, you know, there is no hell come from because they, they, have, a, they, they have a minimized view of God's righteousness and holiness and a neglect of personal sanctification. All right, let's, uh, for interest of time, we're going to move on to sovereignty, and let's try to take these two a little faster, um, unfortunately. So sovereignty is basically, you know, the fact that God is sovereign is basically saying God is king. God is completely authoritative in everything that happens in the universe. He is the highest authority. Um, that's the idea behind God's sovereignty. Um, he is the chief. Supreme in power, and God does whatever he pleases. He's a king of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, he's not subservient. He doesn't have to ask permission from anybody. Um, unlike the God of other religions, like God of Mormonism, had other gods who, who he ascended through the ranks. Uh, the God of the Hindus have, have this sort of hierarchy. Um, but the God of the Bible has no peer. There's, no, there's nobody on the organizational chart uh, where he is at the top. Um, he doesn't have to appeal to anyone. He doesn't have to ask anybody's permission, including your permission. Right? That's something that we sometimes would want God to ask our permission to do things, but that's not the case. He has no creator. He has no mentor to answer to. Um, and he does whatever he wishes. And he has the power to accomplish whatever he pleases. And... Uh, can, uh, this is from the homework. So if somebody has Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, can you read that? Right, that's a great verse about God's sovereignty. Probably the, um, probably the best verse. Um, he does whatever he wants, whatever he pleases. And because God is sovereign, just like subjects in a kingdom, uh, the whole universe obeys his command. Everything from the most trivial to, uh, you know, how short or tall a blade of grass in some random lawn grows, um, to the most profound um, Who's your king? Who's your president? Um, who's the next conquering nation? All of this is subject to God. And th this is the critical thing to, about, to, to understand about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is right. Um, a lot of times you come to this topic of God's sovereignty and kind of resent it a little bit maybe. 
Um, well, why does he get to do whatever he pleases? Um, but the understanding of this doctrine is that God's sovereignty is actually the right thing for the universe. Because God is holy and pure and perfectly righteous and perfectly just. You want God to be sovereign over the universe. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? If you believe, if you have a high view of God's sovereignty, what does that imply in um, how you think about life? Yeah, we, so again, we, we come to the fact that, you know, sovereignty isn't the only attribute of God. If sovereignty was the only attribute of God, that would be an attribute to be feared. Because God can do whatever he wants with you. But God is also a God of love. And if you're in Christ, he said in Romans 8.28 that he would work all things for your good. And if you think about that, how is that possible? How could he work all things? And that word all is really confounding. Like, do you mean all things? Like, what about, like, what, what shirt does Mark wear to, to, to church today? Like, do you work that for my good? And somehow, the Bible says God works all things for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And you believe that, you realize that the entire universe is orchestrated in your favor. The entire universe. There's nothing in the universe that happens that's not for your good. And as, as, as you were saying, Glenda, if you go through trials, because in this life, Jesus told us there are going to be trials. As you go through these trials, you realize that these trials are completely in control by God. He's completely in control of all of it. He knows the end of this, and he also knew the beginning. He knew when it was going to start and knew when it's going to end. Um, and even if the things that are taking place inside are things you don't understand, uh, God understands. And more so, he loves you, and he is with you. And that's something that, you know, like there's so many people struggling with anxiety today. Um, just anxiety and and. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, this, the uncertainty that that sort of modern life has sort of thrown us into. Um, but realize that even through all of this uncertainty, God is completely sovereign. There's nothing that's surprising God. Um, God is orchestrating all of it. You, you had something, Dan?
and he'll bring us from this. And, and again, one of the things that we were talking about in holiness is, does that sound like a good thing? <laughs> to be conformed to the image of the sun. Sometimes we look at that and we're like, eh, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But that is um, the path to joy. So it is for our good. Good point. Um, well, I think one, one example biblically to understand this is the, the example of Joseph. You know, when Joseph was sold into slavery, he probably was thinking, I have no idea why this is happening. Why would you, make, why would you let this happen to me? Is it something I did? Um, you, do you forget about me? And then he was falsely accused of sexual assault and thrown into prison for it. And Joseph thought, why is this happening to me, right? I mean, is that, is that how you would feel? If these things are going on in your life and you're falsely accused and, and thrown into prison, you might think, this, why is this happening? Why is God allowing this? Um, and then, you know, he, he thinks he's going to get out because, you know, he, this, this whole dream thing. And then he doesn't get out <laughs> for like another year. <laughs> and, uh, and all through those trials, you know, there's no indication that God ever told him, hey, you know, don't worry about it. I, I got this. Um, but you see at the end, that God's purpose was for Joseph to be the singular person in the right place in the right time to save his entire family and the nation of Israel and God's redemptive plan. And you think, if Joseph didn't do that, if God didn't bring Joseph through those things, would he be the person he is at the time that he needed to be? Um, and that, it, I think that biblical story is the story of all of our lives in some way or another. God brings us through these trials in a sovereign way. God did not lose control in any of those points, right? Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and as, as Danny was saying, you're, a lot of times it's growing you. But even sometimes when you don't understand why things are happening, maybe you fall ill, um, maybe there are issues you're battling against, um, and you don't feel very in control of them. Um, you know, God is, you know, you can, here's the thing. God is sovereign, but God is also, as, as uh, Ian and Mark were preaching this week in men's Bible study, God is also good. And this is the thing that, is the really profound truth that, that I, I really only recently grasped, is that, you know, God is good, and we can trust that all his purposes for us are good. And so his sovereignty is a good thing, right? Because he means good for us. And, you know, even though you might be going through stuff now, God will ultimately bring that to a good purpose for you. Um, yes?
way. We, we, he knows everything. He's in control of every, every detail, even in the case of uh, maybe a, a baby that's not born healthy. Um, things that we don't understand, things where we, under, you know, we would ask, why would God allow this? All right, skip. We're going to move on. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that also means, you know, all of the other things in our lives, too. You know, a lot of people are afraid of Satan, and you realize... God is sovereign over Satan, too. Um, Satan is God's devil. There, there's no reason for a believer um, to fear Satan because, you know, God is in control of Satan, and God is on your side. Right? Um, the, the other thing, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but, like, people also say God has a purpose for everything, even in the media. Um, but for, for those who believe in the sovereignty of God, that's true. And his purpose is for your good. Um, so what a comfort. God is even sovereign over your salvation. And, you know, there is no chance that, you know, God can make a mistake on your salvation, right? That, you know, sometimes you, you're afraid that, uh, you know, you might fill out a form or something and then uh, you'll take it to the DMV and the DMV will be like, yeah, that's the wrong form. <laughs> like, that's not, you know, you know reject. And um, that's happened to me before. And the problem is moot because God um, will not make a mistake. He won't, um, he won't sort of, you can't do something that's like too bad. That he's just like, you know what, that, that whole salvation thing, um, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. You, know? um, you, you were just behaved too badly. Um, that, that's not going to happen. He's completely sovereign, even over your own um, actions. Um, and, and just really fast, because we're out of time, you know, some, some wrong views. Some people view the world as a cosmic battle between God and Satan, right? And in fact, this is how the, cult, the popular culture sort of like, depicts Christianity is, you know, we're, we're sort of, um, you know, on God's side fighting and, and we're sort of imagining ourselves as some sort of army and then the other side is sort of Satan and, and sort of even the TV shows sort of play him up as like the reasonable one. Um, well, that's not how it is at all. Is, is, is the nature of the, the universe a cosmic battle between and God and Satan? Um, no, there's no battle. <laughs> I mean, th there, might be, there might be some conflicts here and there, but that's only because God allows it. Um, but Satan is um, completely in control by God. So God is in completely in control of Satan. And anybody else who thinks that they are sovereign, you know, Satan's greatest sin was to sort of um, reject the sovereignty of God and want to take that for himself. And sometimes that's what we do. Um, we, we reject what God's purposes are. and We try to make ourselves a sovereign. And anybody with an anti-God agenda, um, Whatever, you know, philosophies, LGBTQ, whatever it is, um, these people will not ultimately succeed. Um, and God is sovereign over even these things. Um, and, you know, um, l lastly, just to end with this, my, my kids asked me recently, you know, if God is sovereign over everything, then why do we pray? It's a good question, actually. Um, it's a good question because, you know, if God is sovereign over everything, then why should we pray? Um, isn't God just going to work out whatever he wants anyways? And the answer of that, of that question is not to sort of downplay God's sovereignty, 
but to realize that God is even sovereign over your prayers, right? So his sovereignty is so absolute and comprehensive that he is even sovereign over, you're going to pray for this, and then this is going to happen as an answer to your prayer, and then God is going to get the glory. And all of that was already in God's sovereign plan. Um, yes, and then we're going to end. All right, um, this is, we're out of time for today, and next week we'll kind of try to finish out the other, like, seven points. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you a lot, um, again for this time to study your attributes, and we pray that it would affect our lives. It wouldn't be a theoretical study. It wouldn't be a study that's just in our minds and stays there, but that it would drive us to love and drive us to worship, and that it would drive us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.